0: And welcome to That's Life, the show where we understand just as much about the fiscal cliff as we did last week, and that's not saying much. Good afternoon, folks, and thanks for listening. I'm Miriam Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 2 p.m. as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the home of the Nachum Siegel Network. On the beautiful Lower East Side, Avrami is back from his Hanukkah vacation in Baltimore. By the way, that's not a punchline. That is the reality. That's where he lives. Does everyone know that Avrami commutes from Baltimore? How was your commute this morning? Oh, it was uh, quite excellent. I slept most of the way. Thank you. Cold. It's cold these days. I don't really like to travel in the cold,
1: but I guess it's better than when it's raining.
0: You didn't bring a blanket? You don't go with a blanket on the bus?
1: I bring Big Downer.
0: Oh, that's right. By the way, that's not a euphemism for like, oh, somebody who's upsetting and and Johnny Raincloud. It's a Rummy's big down jacket.
1: That's right. I purchased (laughs) it in Montreal. And when you (laughs) don't wear it as a coat, it's a great down blanket.
0: It's hysterical. Anyway, if you are a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. And if you are a returning listener, thanks as always for making us part of your day. If Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you... Do what no one in my family does because they've had enough of me already. Visit me on my blog at dearthatslife.com. You can friend me on Facebook. Send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email at miriam at dearthatslife.com or miriam at nachomsiegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show, but I will make sure to get back to you afterwards. Vrum, I brought a whole new stash of fortune cookies. You know why? Because I, um, I was going through the bag last week with Stan when Stan was sitting in for you. And I had like a bunch of broken, that, and you know my rule, if it's broken in the packaging, it's null and void. So I I needed to bring in a whole bunch of um, replacements. So I have about, I don't know, like eight or nine here, all that are still good. So, and by the way, we, we decided also maybe I should stop crunching the bag. Maybe that's what's making them break before I open them. It's possible. Anyway, let's see how this one goes. If there is no wind, there will be no wave. All right, that one I like better. Anyway, let's take care of some business. Here are today's national holidays. It is International Human Solidarity Day. It is Mud Day, but it's mud with two Ds, so I'm not exactly sure what that means. Um, It is also Gluten-Free Baking Week, and this is my favorite one, even though I didn't realize it was today, but I was pretty sure it was next week. But I trust Yael Lassen, our fearless intern, because her information and her research is always correct. It is National Regifting Day. Avram, yeah, so you're welcome that I didn't bring you anything that I didn't really want. But for those of you who are Seinfeld fans, I have two words for you, label maker. Anyway, uh, crazy follows me everywhere, and I think that crazy followed all of us um, as a result of the Newtown shootings, the tragic and horrible massacre that took place last week, um, last Friday. It's almost a week. And um, while there are other things that are going on in the news... Um, I, I don't know what they are right now because I still have complete tunnel vision when it ta- when it comes to talking about gun control and talking about keeping our kids safe and talking about or reading about the massacre in Newtown that took so many innocent lives. It is just it is completely tragic, and the more details unfold, the more the authorities find out about what happened, what did not happen, what we thought happened, and the the backstory, if there is any, it's just making things absolutely worse. The answers that we are getting um, are are limited. They're limited and they're unsatisfying. I think is is a way to put it. And in con- in con- having a conversation with my oldest about it, my oldest is in high school and she went to school on Monday and they had an assembly in the um, in the auditorium in school where the principal addressed the what had happened in Newtown and talked about school safety and was and, and opened the floor to any questions that kids had. Because again, even though they're high schoolers, they're and they're hearing a tremendous amount of information. They're hearing it from their family. They're hearing it from their friends. They're hearing it from the news. They're hear, reading it on Facebook and, and and even the news accounts, even what was written in the papers the first couple of days we find out now was completely inaccurate or misleading. And not because anybody was being malicious, but because they were going on what they thought they had and now we find out that that's wrong. So she was really, the principal was really opening it up to answer any questions. And so my daughter was telling me about the experience. And I said to her, well, do you have, do you have any questions for me? And she looked at me and said, why? Are there any answers? And I, <laughs> I, I think I was just as silent then as I am now. And I looked at her and I said, no, there are no good answers. There are no real answers. Um, so she said, okay, then there's no point in asking a question. And I just thought that that was very telling. And that actually leads us into the um, the impetus for our first guest. You are listening to That's Life, live from the home office of the Nahum Siegel Network on the lovely Lower East Side. I am Miriam L. Wallach here on the stream at com, And it is time for me to welcome my first guest, Dr. Jonathan Fast, Associate Professor at the Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University and author of Ceremonial Violence, an in-depth look into school shootings joins us on the phone Dr. Fast thank you Hi Miriam how are you
2: Very good thank you
0: I'm sure you've had one heck of a week
2: It's been busy uh, there've been a lot of uh, requests
0: I I can only imagine Tell me does this does this massacre almost a week ago does it is it does it, is it different for you or is it different than other ones that you've studied
2: Yes uh it's different for a couple of reasons but the the main reason is that it Took place in Newtown, which is about forty five minutes from where we live and we have friends there. Oh god. And we have some connections with the community. Uh and I I must say that when it is in your own backyard it has a completely different feeling to it.
0: I, I um, can't even and, imagine.
2: Yeah, we've been deeply affected by this.
0: I, I can't I can't imagine. I know that I've been as everyone else has. I've been glued to the television and um, I've been looking for answers the same way everyone else has. And there aren't any answers. Um, and it doesn't sound like anything that people have been able to present is satisfying enough to make anyone um, feel complete or or at ease with an answer that they're receiving, especially since other stories have then Um, spiraled out of this situation where children are there was a story in the Midwest about how a child brought a gun to school because his parents had encouraged him to do so even though it was an unloaded gun so that he could protect himself in case someone else brought a gun to school.
2: Wow, this was after the shooting, I assume.
0: Yes, this was just a couple, this was, um, I think it was two days ago, yeah.
2: Yeah. We have such a strange attitude about guns. You know, the idea that carrying a gun or having a gun in the house is going to help you (laughs) if there's a home intrusion. Uh, You know, I I think probably from watching millions of films where people have shootouts, it's not a very realistic uh, picture of,
0: of life. Right. And um, I wonder, and we, we've, with new information that's come out about the shooter from last week and the amount of time that he seemed to have been spent playing video games, these shooting and violent video games, uh-huh. uh, there is plenty of research that shows that there is definitely um, a, a desensit- desensitization or, or a lack of sensitivity towards um, real. Military situations and guns, etc., because kids are just learning to shoot them or they're just playing them as games. Is this? Is, is somebody going to turn around and say that that this shooter, that this murderer, turned or you know was just living out what he's been playing on TV?
2: You know, Miriam, I, I don't want to take issue with what you said, but from my reading, um, most of the serious research in this area shows that there's not a connection. And we can demonstrate that to your listeners by just pointing out that the period of first-person first shooter games, that during that period the national homicide rate has fallen. Mm. Um, and uh, there, are, there are actually whole books that are, review the literature for this. But a lot of people have that impression. And I know there were some studies that found that after playing video games, children were more uh, agitated and, uh, for a little while. But in fact, playing games in fantasy, just like reading books in fantasy, doesn't really have much of an effect on your behavior. If so, we're going to look, however, yeah, I'm sorry, if I may go. No, on. no, no, of course, I'm if sorry. We're go- if we're going to find sociological reasons for this, um, I think there are, we need to look in a different place, so we need to look at the pressure that we put on our kids to perform, the what they need to know, to be effective adults in this information and technology-based culture that they're growing up in, and uh, the amount of conformity that we expect from them really isolates children who are a little bit strange. And I think that's the place where we should be looking.
0: I I appreciate you clarifying that. I really do, because even listening, uh, you know, watching the news yesterday and the conversations that I'm watching on live television, on you know, on on morning shows, et cetera, where they keep where where people keep going back to this playing out of re, you know this uh, realistic moment of of living out what they're playing what kids are playing on these games and whether whether there really is a transference. Is this just our need as a society to to find an answer to find a motive where there there really might not be one?
2: I think there's a motive, but I think we are looking under the under the wrong lamppost. Mm. So to speak, that's. Uh, I think. Wait, I got. I got to think for a second. <laughs> you say something. Here. Uh, all right, let's go on to something else. You got I'm it. Back
0: to this. And that's, that's not it. a problem. I. You it's know. Middle aged brain syndrome. That's uh, trust me. I, I'm. I'm not middle aged yet, but I'm not functioning any better than you are. <laughs> I. I can't. I, I honestly. I can't. I can't think about anything else this week. And even just putting my kids on the bus Monday morning took such an act of, I don't even know if the, the maturity, I think was the only word I can come up with, and putting my kids on the bus and knowing that this is, that, that last Friday was the act of a madman.
2: Was You had, the, to, you had to keep telling yourself that they'd be safe, <laughs> that this was an unusual occurrence. And an important thing for us to tell your listeners is that school is still the safest place a student can be, a safe, the safest place a child can be um despite you know school rampage shootings are acts of terrorism right. um they're very rare. There are very few children who have been killed during school shootings compared with drunk driving accidents and and other kinds of traffic accidents um But the effect of the of the school shooting is to um make us all fear uh make us all fearful right. about our lives and and that's really the terrible thing about it.
0: We 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 send our kids to school, and it should be such a normal thing, such an a, easy, uh, everyday commonplace part of our routine. And somehow or another, even four days later of in four, four days into this week, I should say, I I still just want to go pick up my kids, and it's and it's irrational. I understand it's irrational, but and by the way, I also know that it's only for my benefit, not for theirs. I mean, my older kids and I use use that term loosely because my oldest is just a freshman in high school, but my older kids understand what, uh, uh, I shouldn't say that, know what happened. My younger kids have no clue. So my being irrational, going to school, picking them up, or just going there, (coughs) excuse me, is really just about my needs.
2: How old are your younger kids?
0: (coughs) Sorry. Um, Really the younger grades, like first grade, nursery, those kind Uh of ages.
2: And you've decided not to talk to them about
0: this? No, I've decided... Actually, it's funny that you bring that up, and I think that that's something that we should talk about, is um, what is the right age to start talking about this to your kids?
2: Uh, Have they heard about it from your (coughs) friends?
0: Um, They've heard about it because... My kids have heard about it, actually, because we have discussed it at their levels, depending on their age, peripherally, meaning we knew that they were going to hear things on the bus. As I, I say all the time, education begins on the bus, And I never want my kids to hear things from other kids when they should have heard it from me. So I've discussed certain things with the the kids based upon their age level and what I think that they can process and what I think they either need to know or not need to know. Um, But they all came home from school. I should say the ones who were in elementary school and definitely the one who came home from high school came home on Monday saying that their principals had spoken to them, that school was a safe place, and gave them basically an opportunity to ask questions if there if there were if there were any that they could answer
2: right that sounds good (laughs) yeah sounds like a good school
0: yeah no thank god it it is a very good school and it's actually a school that's still reeling uh my kids all go to half term it's a school that's still reeling from hurricane sandy we still have a lot of displaced families and a lot of displaced kids and a lot of students who have unfortunately their own stories of escaping either on skate on uh on surfboards and, and different situations where their th- every, their belongings were floating away and they just floated with them in order to save themselves. And it was just so there's there's been a lot that these kids have had to cope with in yeah. the last in the last seven, eight weeks. And so now hearing hearing this where they've been going to school and that's been their that's been their normal going yep. to school has been their normal. And now hearing stories uh, about this tragedy in not a remote place. Connecticut right. is not a remote place. It is part of the tri-state area, and our kids know what the tri-state area is. It brought it, brought it so close to home that, frankly, we, we, we felt it would be irresponsible not to discuss it with them.
2: Right. So, And what you don't, what you don't want to do as a parent is you don't, you don't want to create a feeling that it's a forbidden topic because kids are very good at picking up these subtle um, these subtle signs. You know, and if, if if they sense that you're uncomfortable speaking about it, or that you don't want to speak about it, they'll move away from it. But it's important. Um, I think it's important uh, to tell your children what's going on, uh, And, you know, and not not in a particularly dramatic way, but just to tell them the facts and that these things happen, but that they happen very, very rarely.
0: Right, and that is the act. It is the act of a madman. I think that that's also something that I've been driving home to them: is that you know,
2: th- well, hey let's let's try and redefine this again, okay. instead of saying a madman, because as soon as we start using terms like that, we don't investigate it anymore. it's just It's like saying, "Well, it was evil, you know, and of course it was evil, but that's really just a way of putting it off the board. Um, in fact, I think if if we look closer, we can see that this is an act of someone who was sort of exiled from uh, from our culture, from our civilization because he was very odd. He was very quirky, Um, and I think that's probably uh, where the problem lies. I mean, as soon as as you say he's a crazy man, you know, you dismiss it. And we certainly don't want to justify it, because this is by far the most horrible um, shooting I've ever heard about. Um, But it is useful for us in terms of preventing future shootings to, to look a little deeper. Into this, and uh, he was a, he was a child who was extremely shy, and uh, and ashamed, and apparently had difficulty communicating. So some of the interviews talk about how, while he wasn't bullied, when he spoke his his style of speech was so so awkward and stilted that other kids in the class would giggle. Mm. And he, what we saw was a lot of shame averse behavior. So he was always by himself. Um, He would, you know, sort of stay off in the corner. He would avoid uh, other people. And some people now think about this, some researchers in this area now think about this as being shame-averse behavior, shame-avoidant behavior. Um, And people who don't fit into the pattern very well, who don't meet the the guidelines of what a successful child looks like in, in this very success-oriented culture that we live in um, are alienated from the culture and are shamed because shame is the sense when you're, when you're driven out of paradise, right? That's what you feel is shame. Mm. Um, and that the shame accumulates over years, and instead of discharging it, and we discharge shame, if you think about your own shame experiences, we generally discharge it through talking to people with whom we we're very close. And if you're not very close to anybody, there's nobody you can talk about it with, and particularly if you have trouble speaking and trouble articulating what you're feeling. Um, so we can just assume the shame is, is accumulating to the point where he feels that he is damaged, that he is permanently damaged goods. And at that point, suicide becomes an attractive uh, alternative to trying to continue in this kind of high-pressure life And once you decide to commit suicide, um, you can perform any act you want without consequences. So while he has this accumulation of shame, what comes with this is a lot of rage. Mm. And also the desire to be famous because that is the thing that our society uh, respects, is fame. And the way you do that is by doing the most horrifying thing you can imagine. And I, I think... That may be, you know. Again, this is all conjecture. Right. We know very little about this young man, but I think that process describes what some of the school shooters went through, and I think uh, it might apply to Adam Lanza. Uh,
0: it's funny because now I, I mean, I, I hear everything that you're saying, and it's such a, it's such an, a new perspective for me that um, I really appreciate. I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't realize until the way you just explained it how you're right just making some making it referring to him as a madman pushes the conversation off and it's more important for us to identify really what was going on so that we as a society can address a population or a group of kids who grow up isolated, shamed, different, quirky, what what however you want to put it and therefore are so unaccepted that this is this is something they, they potentially could turn to. Yes. I, I think that that's a very um, enlightening and, I mean, and such a sad perspective, but so important for us as a society to really pay attention to because it almost sounds, and I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go as far to say that this is 100% true, but it almost sounds like this is something that is preventable.
2: Well, I think it is, but I think it involves moving society, uh, moving our American society anyway, um, to a different place. And, you know, that's hard. That's like moving an ocean liner. (laughs) You know, Uh, Um, maybe it happens in very small steps and very small degrees. So, for example, uh, banning guns, banning certain guns, right? mm -hmm. Banning semi-automatic high-caliber Right. elephant gun sort of weapons, is a, is a small step in that direction. Um, r- restorative justice uh, in schools and uh, perhaps with nonviolent crimes is another small step in that direction, as opposed to the retributive justice that we practice now where people you know, are thrown into jail. Right. Um, so instead of that, uh, a, a chance to talk with the victims and to make things right. So there are a lot of small steps that we can make, but this isn't going to get better quickly. This you know, is, and it's very hard. Seems another thing that American society has a lot of difficulty with is changes that they're not going to see for a long time. You know, thinking about the future. Interesting. There's a there's a lot of you know I want it now right. and I want it my way, like at Burger King.
0: <laughs> there is no, unfortunately, right as you're as you're pointing out, there is no quick fix. You're listening to That's Life. On the Knockham Network, I'm Miriam El Wallach, joined by Dr. Jonathan Fast, associate associate professor at the Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiv University and author of Ceremonial Violence, an in-depth look into school shootings. Um Dr. Fast, can we talk about Columbine for a minute? Sure. I, I mean I know that there have been um, a lot of references to Columbine this week and um, a number of articles going back into the lives of of those of some who survived Columbine and showing where they are. Now and how this shooting has affected them. Yes, I I wonder. Uh, I, there was actually I think an additional article in um, the New York Times yesterday. I, I I think it was yesterday, though these days are melding yeah. about ha- about the the potential um, um, rehab rate or success rate for the students who survived the shooting in Newtown to um to live fully successful and healthy lives, despite um, the memories that they are going to haunt them for a long time.
2: Yes. I didn't read that article, but uh, it is. <clears throat> I do know from studying some of the shootings, uh, in particular, there was a shooting in 1976 in uh, San Diego uh, involving a young woman named Brenda Spencer who shot up the school across the street and didn't actually kill any of the children, um and their children were very little they were you know they were first and second graders um but that this has remained a, a keystone in their lives this event and you know some of them in some cases it's it's uh, brought them into uh successful careers um and in other cases you know it's led to uh, alcoholism and substance abuse so what are I, the? What are I the, imagine it's the same thing with the Columbine
0: right. students. What what are the recovery? I mean, I, when I think about the two the two polar groups that were affected on Friday, both the young children who were escorted out, eyes closed, hands on each other's shoulders, or holding hands, and escorted out so they wouldn't have to see um, what was surrounding them, and then the adults who went out with their eyes open. I'm uh, who has if you can if you can even speak to this, and I, I don't know that there's information out there. I, I don't, but who has a better chance of success?
2: Well, and how do you how do you define success also? No, good point. is a question. Um, I think that the I think that these memories are going to haunt them for the rest of their lives. I think the people whose children weren't killed are going to be also haunted with survivor guilt. Mm. Terrible survivor guilt, you know, and a lot of this why why was my child spared and and my friend's child killed um i think uh there are some you know and and then it depends so much on on who they are and you know what their lives are like and what kind of supports and risks they're dealing with outside of that but uh, this is going to be a central event for them probably for the rest of their lives um you know and then this it's not uncommon for people to have horrifying events in their lives uh, throughout history. I mean, the generation before us, right. people were involved in World War II, people were involved in Vietnam. Uh, World War One was certainly one of the most horrifying events in history. So, right. you know, this is a normal part of... I mean, I can't say it's a normal part. I was part. about to say... Yeah, it's it's, a, not, a, it's you, not a normal part. No, but, it, it, you know, but it's, it's funny,
0: but I completely understand what you're saying. And again, good. the perspective that you're presenting is is so important because, yes, yeah. we, have generation, we have a whole generation of Holocaust survivors yes. who, who made right. lives for themselves.
2: Thank you. Exa- and, and learned uh, uh, enormous amounts. I mean, the fact is it's, it's situations of adversity that teach us about life. And, you know, we don't want to have such a smooth path that we don't learn any lessons.
0: Mm. That's a very, very important point. I, I yeah. think that I personally... Um, need some guidance. In, I know I'm serious in in how to um, in how to move on, and I, I think that there are plenty of <clears throat> excuse me. I think there are plenty of plenty of parents out there who feel the exact same way. It's such tunnel vision. I can't. I, I know that there are other things going on in the world. I, I uh-huh. do. I am cognizant on a completely cerebral level that there are other things going on in the world. But frankly, I don't care, and frankly, I don't want to read about them, and I. I want to hear more about gun control. I want to see more movement. I want to know uh, you know uh, i I want to make sure that every single day at my kids at, at my kids' school is completely smooth and that their biggest problems are that they didn't like the snacks I sent them that day or whatever it is. but I know that I need to move past i I, I need we need help with that.
2: Yes, we want to get we want to we want to get it over with we want to get away from it.
0: Is it is it like pulling off? I mean, is it just gonna is it gonna, just gonna take time? I mean, I did not. I don't live forty five minutes from Newtown. I don't know anybody who was directly affected in the shooting. Obviously, um, you know there are Jewish families all, all over the world who, when they heard that there was that there were two Jewish children and one was laid to rest, uh, Noah was 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 buried first and in 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 tradition, so to speak, and um and everyone felt for them and then seeing. The, the rabbi and the yarmulkes and everything at these pictures of, from the funeral are just completely gut-wrenching and, and heartbreaking, and there are no words, and, and sending letters to the school in Newtown, et cetera. Uh, but, but at what point do we say we need, to, we need to move on? And this is me as a society member who is not directly affected.
2: Well, let's see. Uh, how long do you mourn for, uh, for your spouse if he passes on?
0: I, 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 please God, we should be together for many years, but the, um, I I would have to imagine that there's no, you know,
2: isn't there a, isn't there something in Jewish law about how long you,
0: well, there's, yes, you, you you are, you have about 30 days of mourning, but that is, but that is from a, you know, that is from a a legal, you know, a law point of view, I don't know that Uh that's, that that's an emotional cap, and again, and again, I'm looking at this from a point of view of a person who has no connection specifically to anybody in Newtown yeah. but just as a society member I am so blown away that even hearing the news on Friday made me shudder and telling my husband right. the news over the phone just sure. made both of us just start to cry. It is a parent's worst nightmare.
2: I th- and I think everyone feels the way you do although I'm- Perhaps not with such intensity and... uh, Well, you hardly know me, but yeah, I'm a pretty intense kind of gal, yeah. And not with such clarity and uh, ability to describe it. So we're talking about six, seven days. Right. Yeah, it's going to take a while longer, I think.
0: Does the... the, I know that there were calls for the... And I, I don't know if this has been repeated, but there were initial calls for the school in Newtown to be... Raised and for a memorial to be built there instead, and for them to rebuild the schoolhouse somewhere else—is—is is that still a discussion going on? Is that rational? Yes,
2: that well, that always happens after a school shooting. Um, if the shooting, so there are two, there are two um, courses that people take. One is that over the weekend they bring in crews and they repaint and they spackle everything, so there's no. Um, there's no remnant uh-huh. of what happened, and then everyone goes back to school, and that's mostly done with older kids. In the case of Columbine, where it had a where it had a lot of uh, it echoed um, through the country's consciousness, um, they rebuilt the the areas where the where the worst of the killing went on, um, and they rebuilt them radically, mm. so they look like different different rooms, uh, but they certainly Chose not to uh, close down the school. Um, and in this case, you know, uh, I think, you know, there are people who specialize in, in doing this. There's a guy named Lindahan um, who was uh, involved in designing the Oklahoma City bombing memorial. Mm. Um, and I don't really know too much about this, but I would imagine that there is some value in helping people with their grief by not. Um, tearing it down
0: interesting very um, very interesting well you doc-
2: know, maybe doc- you want to just change it enough so that you can go in there without getting completely spooked
0: yeah i i mean i i can't imagine i can't imagine walking back into a room where i had already witnessed such a uh, uh, such violence such a massacre and being no. and being able to walk back in there i think that that it's a it's an interesting point about redesigning the room so that 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 area no longer exists. You can't re, you can't relive that memory if this once you when you walk into that space if the space is no longer there.
2: Right, right. I just don't think you would be able to go back into the room. I heard someone interviewed in Newtown soon after the shooting. Right, I mean within about an hour or two, or maybe the same day. And she said she started to describe what had happened, and she said, and then there was the room. With all the children, and she just couldn't say it. Ugh. She couldn't say that that they were dead. She couldn't bring herself to say it uh, in the interview. Wow. Um, and you know, I can't. I can't imagine. You know, I'm I'm dealing with this from a safe distance. Mm. From you know, I'm on the other side of town, so to speak, on the other side of Eastern Connecticut. Um, but I can't imagine the. How you deal with the emotions of being there, no, being part of this, of being part of the community, devastating.
0: Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine either. But Dr. Fast, I, I just want to thank you because so much of what you've contributed to our show today really enlightened um, both me and I'm sure my listeners about the perspective that we need to take and. Honestly, that the, that the grieving is going to take, the grieving, even for those of us who are not directly involved, is just going to take a while. We as a, as a society and as a nation are going to take time to heal.
2: Right, and, let, and let's remember to keep on moving our culture by small steps in the direction um, that we want to, where, no. we, where we accept outsiders, right. you know, and value them for how they're different.
0: I, I hear that. It's a very, very interesting, interesting point and an unbelievable teachable moment. Dr. Fass, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much.
2: Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to That's Life on the Nahum Segal Network. I'm Miriam L. Wallach. That was a heavy, heavy segment, though I think it was a very important segment. And it is my pleasure to make a sharp turn and lift the program by introducing Richard Bernstein. Richard Bernstein is a tireless advocate for disabled rights and provides a voice to those who would otherwise be forced to be silent. He's been blind since birth, but Richard is a graduate of the University of Michigan and Northwestern University School of Law. He is an attorney with the Sam Bernstein Law Firm in Farmington Hills, Michigan. he I, I mean, I could read the entire list of accolades that follow Richard's name, but Richard has been included in included in the 40 under 40 cranes detroit business 40 under 40 and recognition on worldwide television by cnn as a leader in keeping keeping government honest he's also been the recipient of the 2008 john w comiskey pro bono award from the state bar of michigan and was selected by the young lawyers section of the state bar of michigan as the 2003 2004 regina merrick outstanding young lawyer award recipient for outstanding commitment to public service his accolades go on and on Most importantly for us, though, Richard was selected as an inductee to the National Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. The induction is to take place this April, April 2013, because in his spare time, if there is any, Richard is an avid runner. He has completed 17 marathons, including seven New York City marathons, and has completed three Ironman triathlons. He is also the co-host of a one-hour legal radio show called Fighting for Justice with Pulitzer Prize winner Angelo Henderson, on WCHBAM in Metro Detroit. Hello, Richard. Miriam, thank you so much for having me on.
1: I'm so delighted to be with you today.
0: Totally my pleasure. I mean, I also, I mean, <laughs> I have to let everyone know that was only half your bio because there is so much to be said about you that I could just keep going on and on. But what what brought me to you is not only because I knew you were a Team Yahad runner, just like I am, and that you and I are going to be running, please God, next month in Miami which um, I I have a feeling you're doing the whole marathon because I'm only doing the half.
1: Well, you know what, unfortunately, I, uh, I don't, I'm going to be there and be there in spirit and I'll be oh. there to be cheering you on, but unfortunately, Miriam, I'm recovering from a pretty serious accident. Oh, that's that, right, that's yeah. right. So tell
0: me about, so let's tell everybody about that because I think that one of the questions when, when people are hearing your bio is that you're an avid runner mm-hmm. and you've been blind since birth, mm-hmm. so there, therein lies a bunch of questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's let's explain to our listeners how that actually happens. Well, what happened
1: was is that, you know,
0: athletics is my
1: passion. I love anything athletics.
0: And I have to really thank my rabbi, uh, Rabbi
1: Alefsky, because he's helped me through a very difficult time. And he helped me to realize that ultimately with the, the only choice that we get to make is that what exists between good versus evil. So basically that's the choice that we make, whether you want to be a good or a bad person. But all else that happens to us in our life has been predetermined. Mm. The one choice that we get to make is how we choose to react to those circumstances and to those events that befall us as we move through the process of life. And what happened to me, and that was a very helpful thing as I kind of went through this process, because what happened to me was I was actually in mint condition and I was ready for my 18th marathon uh, that I was going to do here in New York. And I was walking in Central Park, and I have memorized the entire loop of Central Park. I know where every crevice, indentation, incline, decline is. And I was walking in the pedestrian lane, and I was up by 95th Street where the pool is, and there was a very steep downhill. And unfortunately what happened was a cyclist was going at about 35 miles an hour. We know this because that's what the police estimated. Wow. And as he was going at that speed, unfortunately he wasn't looking forward, and he came into the pedestrian lane and unfortunately struck me directly in the back. Uh. And so basically what happened was it created some pretty horrific injuries. My entire left side of my body, it shattered my pelvis, it shattered my hip, and then it ultimately shattered the socket and ball that connect the pelvis to the hip, on top of which there was a lot of facial issues that uh, had to be dealt with. And I spent 10 weeks uh, being treated at Mount Sinai Hospital, which was outstanding, absolutely outstanding treatment, and then have been doing rehab and therapy, and my focus is trying to work my way back. So, unfortunately, um, my goal is that within a year, I would very much like to be able to do the New York City Marathon, but right now I'm just really focused on learning how to walk and dealing with the intense pain that comes with a very tough injury like this, but I'm going to fight through it. I'm going to really push forward. I'm not going to give up, and I just have to kind of keep going.
0: Wow. That is, I mean, unbelievable, Richard. First of all, it's an unbelievable story, but second of all, it's an unbelievable perspective. It's like somebody said, um, last week, you can choose to be happy. It is a choice. People can make that choice that no matter what they're facing, they choose to be happy. And I think that you're taking that perspective in, in light of the bigger picture and what that kind of an injury can do to an athlete is just absolutely remarkable.
1: Well, it's interesting because you have
0: to learn like
1: how to adjust. Like, cause imagine going from being in mint condition to just a moment later, having to have nurses reposition you like every half hour throughout the night not being able to use the bathroom and not being able to wear clothes for ten weeks um, and then having to do with the pain management but the challenge of it is is, is that it was very helpful when Rabbi Oleski told me this that everything is preordained and everything is meant to be and that it's really our choice what we want to do with it because what it did was it let me say okay Something has to come of this, that this can't just be a tragedy. Something will come out of this. So right now, I'm actually in federal litigation with the mayor of New York, with the Bloomberg administration, because we need to make the park safer. Um, so what, what the people at Mount Sinai had said was, you know, if this had been a baby carriage, and I was in the lane with all the baby carriages and a baby carriage had been struck by a cyclist going at this uh, speed, you know, they would be killed without any question. Right. So the key here is, is that I'm really trying to turn my attention to trying to make Central Park safer, and also I'm working on bicycle safety campaigns all across the country. I just got back from San Francisco where in the last couple of weeks in San Francisco two pedestrians were killed by bicyclists. Oh. In Boston there were five What? killed. This is becoming a huge issue, and so I really have come to believe that perhaps I'm having to go through this pain, and I'm having to go through this struggle, because it's meant to be, because I need to, to take on this initiative and take on this issue so that we can save some lives and prevent this from happening to other people. But yes, it is a crisis that's happening across the country, uh, because what's happening is like cities like New York and, and Chicago and Boston and in San Francisco, they're in a race to put in these bike lanes all across the cities. And what cities have done is they've become so, which, and trust me, I love biking because I'm a triathlete. Right. But what's happening is that cities and municipalities have moved so fast to put in bike lanes and have moved so fast to become bicyclist friendly, mm. that they have not thought about the safety ramifications that are developing. And in fact, the number one cause of emergency room visits in the United States is bicyclists and rollerbladers. Wow. So it's a real challenge, and we have to start working on this. And you know, my goal is, through our litigation with the Bloomberg administration, is to create some necessary changes so that bicyclists and pedestrians can coexist together without having the horrible danger that is occurring in New York and cities like this all across the country.
0: I, can, I, I still cannot wrap my head around the fact that people have been killed by cyclists in the, in the last couple of weeks.
1: Oh, very many, absolutely. And it's, it, and it's a national epidemic, and it's happening all over the place. And, again, the reason that, that that is not something that you're aware of is because cities and towns, again, have really pushed this whole bicycle initiative so fast that they don't want to acknowledge that there are some major safety ramifications that are coming out of this. And when you go, for example, in New York, if you go put a bike lane on First Avenue, well, what's happening is people, they put in these bike lanes, but there's no explanation of how to use it. Mm. Drivers don't know what to do. Bicyclists don't know what to do. Pedestrians don't know what to do. So what's happening commonly in New York is that people are opening their door And, you know, they're not looking for the bicyclist, and the bicyclists are going at a high rate of speed. So, oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, just to give you an example, at Mount Sinai Hospital, I was the second trauma patient brought in before 9 o'clock on August 13th who was hit by a cyclist. That was just just before 9 o'clock. I was the second you know, person who was a trauma patient. So crazy. if you talk to New York hospitals, they're going to tell you that this is a huge epidemic and a crisis that's occurring all throughout New York because the Bloomberg administration has worked so fast and furious to put in these bike lanes and to become so adamantly pro-bike that they have just neglected the entire safety component that comes with it. And that's what's causing all these accidents and these injuries. And hopefully this litigation that we have against the city for no money, not a dime, not a nickel, not a cent, wow. will hopefully get the city to reevaluate its policy. And we can still put in the bike lanes, and we can still have bicyclists and pedestrians together, but we do have to make it safe. And that's something the city has failed to do.
0: Well, I was just about to ask you how your law practice was surviving while you were you know, <laughs> in 10 weeks in the hospital, but I have a feeling it was probably ramped up up while you were at ten weeks in the in the well, hospital,
1: you know I'll tell you is it's interesting because it was very difficult to to do the law practice because you know again what the challenge that I was having to confront was the pain levels were just astronomically high because right. um, when you have a hip and face issue and pelvis and and femur and all the left side was you know horribly problematic and you know you're not able to use the bathroom or right. do kind of basic things like that. Um, you know, the judges and people that I practice law with were, were very understanding of it. But, you know, I just did the best that I could with it. And, and I think that's the key is that, you know, what you do when you're in this kind of a situation is, and they've taught me this at Mount Sinai, is that you, sell, like you celebrate what you can do today. So, for example, what I'm really focused on right now is it's very painful and very difficult, but what I'm focused on today is that I'm swimming and yeah. I can walk a little bit. So the issue that I say to myself is, I'm going to celebrate what I'm able to do today. So if I'm able to swim today, then I'm going to celebrate that. I'm not going to think about what I used to do. I'm not going to think about the fact that I used to be an Iron Man, that I was a seven time, seven-time, 17-time marathoner. I'm not going to think about what was in the past. I'm going to try to celebrate and focus on what I'm able to do today. And that's a hard thing to do because it can be very distressing and it can be saddening, but that's just... That's just how I'm going to do this. I'm going to take it one day at a time and one step at a time. And every day, hopefully, things should get a little easier and things should get a little bit better. But I'm just going to kind of keep pushing forward and keep persevering. And I also have realized that, you know, I understand my place in the world. I understand maybe why this happened. And I'm just going to understand and recognize, again, that it was preordained and that I'm going to work through this because it was meant to be. And I'm going to
0: appreciate and
1: accept and embrace the struggle, and try to do what I can each day to find one extraordinary positive thing that could happen.
0: That's un- that was such an incredible and uplifting perspective, Richard. I mean, I, I, I—it's sort of like the third time this show that I've been left speechless, um, and uh, in, in this way, this time in a very, very good way. So I have to imagine that the uh, induction into the museum in April is going to be more of a milestone than it might have otherwise been. Well, I think, though, what
1: I'm going to use with that induction is the fact that, you know, I, the blessing that I was given was the blessing of being able to walk out of Mount Sinai Hospital. I am mean, <laughs> able to walk out of the hospital. That was a huge blessing. I'm able to walk, which is an incredible thing. Right. But I think the key that we always have to focus on is the vast majority of people that have accidents like this according to Mount Sinai, don't get to walk out of the hospital. So I think the goal of, you know, this induction is to really highlight and focus on the fact that there are countless numbers of people who don't have the prognosis that I have been blessed with, who aren't going to get this kind of a diagnosis and aren't going to have the opportunity that I have to be able to move forward, though painful, though difficult, still moving forward nonetheless. And what we need to do is we need to focus on the fact that, There are countless numbers of young people, older people, middle-aged people whose lives have been dramatically changed by circumstances, you know, that they weren't anticipating. And that's why we have to keep doing this kind of work. So when people ask, why is it so important that a movie theater needs to be accessible? Why is it so important that aviation needs to be accessible? Why is it so important that schools are accessible, colleges are accessible? And the answer to that question is, that just because you don't get the diagnosis or just because you don't get the prognosis that I was blessed to get doesn't mean that your life should be over. And we have to fight to make sure that people who don't get the prognosis that I have been given are able to have a decent quality of life and we have to work hard to preserve that for those people.
0: That is, that I mean, talk about finding a mission out of every single thing that has happened in your life. I have to... Uh, obviously, I'm sure you you're commended for that outlook all the time, but there are still plenty of people who look at their lot and say, "Woe is me," and you look at your lot and say, "Hey, there's there's something I'm supposed to be doing here."
1: But I think it's important to really point out, though, that I have my bad days too. I was just I about think, to say, y- Richard, <laughs> you got to
0: tell me that there's a bad day. Yes, and because what <laughs> happens is, especially with
1: this kind of a situation, is is that so much of it is dictated by your pain level. So some days, you know, you feel better than others, and, you know, you celebrate the days that you don't feel that bad, and then you work through the days where the pain is high. But I think that the key is, and I think this is the, the, the key thing, is I, I always tell this story because I think it's a very meaningful one where a wonderful lady had called me, because mm-hmm. I get calls from people all across the country on disability issues, and that's what I love to do, and I represent people for free. Wow. But she had called me, and she said, you know, I prayed to Hashem my entire life that I would be given a child. And Hashem gave me a beautiful baby boy, but he gave me a blind child. Mm. And she asked me the question, and it was a very profound question. She said, you know, why did Hashem do this? She said, you know, what kind of life is my child going to have? Is he going to go to school? Is he going to have friends? Is he going to get married? Is he going to be independent? You know, is he going to have anything about his life that's going to be remotely ordinary? And I remember responding to her, and I remember saying, look, it's very much okay to be frustrated and it's very much okay to be disappointed and it's very much okay to be sad because if you're not going to be frustrated and you're not going to be sad, you're not going to have that sense of disappointment, you're not living in a real way of life. Mm. It's not real. I said, but the key to it is, is that, you know, know, look, an easy life doesn't always mean a good life, but conversely, a painful life, a challenged life, a difficult life doesn't always translate into being a good life or a great life, but it does translate to being a fulfilling life. And what I explained to her was, and what I explain whenever I have a chance to speak with anybody that's, that's interested in these issues or wants to talk about it is, is that in many situations, for people that have severe disabilities, like blindness or autism or Down syndrome or whatever the disability might be, is, is that there isn't going to be anything in your life It is going to be ordinary. You just have to accept that. (laughs) But it is going to be extraordinary that Hashem created you for a special mission and for a special purpose. And for those people who can live life and appreciate adversity, hardship, difficult, pain, and challenge, they will be the people that live with a sense of purpose. And for those who can know and appreciate purpose, they will have a genuine sense of passion. And if you live your life with purpose and passion, you will be given the greatest blessing that Hashem could bestow, the ability to have a connection, to connect with other people and connect with our Creator. So it doesn't mean that my life is easy, fun, or enjoyable. But what I will tell you is, as I take on these, these cases and I take on these battles and I take on these challenges, it's that real sense of mission. It's that sense of purpose that kind of gets you through the day. And again, I think what it does is, it doesn't make it easy,
0: but it does make it fulfilling. Wow. What a, what a great lesson. Richard Bernstein joins us. He is an attorney. He is an athlete. He is an advocate. Uh, again, I could go through your bio, but frankly, it's not a two-hour show. There's, um, But tell me something. How many times have you run for Team Yachad? Because, again, that's something that you and I – have in common, even though yes. I'll be running, and you will definitely be cheering me on, <laughs> exactly. Richard. You'll be cheering <laughs> yeah. me on next month, that's for sure. And I yes. have never attempted, nor I have to tell you, do I have any interest in doing a full marathon. I don't have the um, the uh, attention <laughs> to, to run for 26 miles, to be honest. I
1: think you could, and here's the thing. This tell is me why. I want, this is how I want you to approach it, and, and that's why I love athletics so much, and that's why athletics, I believe, goes to the core of life at its essence. And the way I want you to approach and all the runners to kind of approach it mm-hmm. is this. When you start off by doing a marathon, it's just like life. You start off at, I like to use New York as the example, you start off on Staten Island and you're full of energy and, and life and enthusiasm and you just simply realize and think anything is possible and there's nothing that can stop you the music is going the adrenaline is flowing it's just wonderful and you're going to feel that in miami right then what's going to happen is you're going to get to mile seven and at mile seven you start to get a little bit tired and you start to look forward and you say boy i've got another 19 (laughs) and then you get to mile 13 and mile 13 is a challenge because what happens at 13 is you say, you know, look, I have really worked hard at this. I have right. pushed forward. I'm going through pain, and
0: I'm only halfway there.
1: Ugh. This is where it gets really exciting and really extraordinary and incredibly spiritual. No,
0: that's where I go for a cup of coffee. See, yes, that's... I
1: promise you this is what's <laughs> going to happen. And, and, it, and if you do this, it will be life-changing because what will happen is eventually you'll get to mile 20. And what happens at mile 20 is, Every runner goes through this, whether it's one marathon or 17, everyone does this. At mile 20, the pain becomes excruciating, but something extraordinary happens. Something remarkable happens. What happens is, is that we go through our days where the body and the spirit become so intertwined that it becomes difficult, if not impossible, to differentiate them. Okay. But when you get to mile 20, it's that one time, at that one place, that even though your body is infirmed, you can feel the spirit separate and you can feel the spirit transcend. And what you realize is no matter how much pain you're in, no matter what your disability is, no matter what your struggle is, you realize that even though your body is infirmed, the spirit can transcend, the spirit can guide. And if you allow for your body to be guided by the spirit, And if you allow for the spirit to guide the body and allow for that differentiation and allow for that disconnect to happen, you will find that the spirit will guide the body. It will overcome the pain. It will overcome the struggle. It will overcome the challenge. And you'll be able to complete the marathon. So when you get to that mile, that mile marker of mile 20, I promise you, you will find that incredible sense of spiritual adulation that will push you forward and allow for you to reach the 26.2-mile marker and allow for you to accomplish and achieve your goal and allow for you to to finish and reach the finish line in a very spiritual way. And it will allow for you to have a greater connection with Hashem. And that's what athletics does. It provides that kind of connection because what I promise you will happen is you will realize that you will always have what you need when you need it.
2: Mm.
1: Nothing more, nothing less. But I promise you from my own experiences, You will have that what you need when you need it, and you will find that that will get you through what you have to get through. And that life is basically a microcosm of athletics. That if you can work through that, you'll be able to work through other challenges and difficulties that
0: you have to face. Athletics as a metaphor for life, Richard. uh, I I, I hear it. I hear it. I don't know that I'm going to see you at Mario Micro 20, but I, (laughs) I definitely hear it. And I have to tell you also, I bet, I bet the bank, You will finish your next marathon before I finish my first.
1: I don't think, I think, you know what? (laughs) I'll tell you something. But you know what? Let's use it as a wonderful way to get people excited. Okay. This is the way I want you to think about it is is that, you know, you're way ahead of me right now. I'm still learning how to kind of walk distances. I'm still learning how to regain balance. Right. I'm still learning how to deal with pain management issues. So here's the thing is, is that my goal is to work my way back So that way I'll be able to do the New York City Marathon within one year. So what I'm hoping is that your listeners who are following us today will say to themselves, well, wait a minute, you know what, I can do this, I can make this happen. And no matter what your physical condition is, it doesn't matter. You're still further ahead than me because I have to deal with balance issues and just walking issues and pain issues. So I have to work through all that before I can even get to the point where we're able to kind of move forward in the athletic manner that I really want to move forward. So for those people who aren't in shape, who've never run, who've never done anything, they're much further ahead than I am right now. And they should use this as a wonderful opportunity and as an impetus to go out there and follow their goal, follow their dream, and go out and achieve something that they've always wanted to do.
0: Well, I wish you continued, Rafua Shlema, on your, you. on your road to complete health. I look thank forward you. to seeing you in Miami. And, uh, Richard, I hope you'll join us again.
1: I look forward to it, and thank you for this opportunity. God bless you and all your listeners. Thanks so much, Richard. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to That's Life on the Siegel Network. I am Miriam L. Wallach. Thank you for making me part of your day. Today's programming right after us is something to talk about with Randy Wartelski followed by an encore presentation of Rifka Abbey. Then at 5 p.m., the OU presents The Jewish Reaction with Rabbi Yaakov Glasser. Immediately after that, the stunt show, hosted this week by Daniel Gordon. And as we say about the stunt show, you never know what you're going to get. The Thursday Night Extravaganza is on from 7 to 8, followed by an encore presentation of Rifka Abbey's show this week. So it will be played twice today because of a technical glitch, part of a technical glitch that Tuesday night's uh, airing Rivka's show was lost, so we are replaying it twice today, once during the day and once in the evening to accommodate all of her listeners of all ages. It will be followed by Book of Life with Charlie Harari at 9 p.m., and then the day closes with Charlie Bernhout. Don't forget to mit- don't forget to tune in tomorrow as Nahum is on, as he is always, on Fridays with Malcolm Hollein. Saturday Night Siegel with Avrami starts at 10 on the stream, and as you know, JM Sunday with Matis from 7 to 9, and start your week with The Israel Show mayor weingarten hosts at 9 a.m please like their facebook pages if you have not done so already this show will be rebroadcast sunday at 1 p.m on nachamsegel.com i would like to thank my guest dr jonathan fast from the worthwhile school of social work and richard bernstein athlete uh, uh, advocate attorney you name it and finally my thanks to Avrami and to ya alas my fearless intern both of whom make this show happen every single week if you have not already sponsored me as a member of Team Yaha, does I run the half marathon in Miami next month, please do so. Go to, go to TeamYaha.com, click on the link for Miami, and then search for me in the Search for Runner box. You can sponsor me at any donation level. I really appreciate it in advance. I leave you today with Aryeh Kunstler's B'Shem Hashem. For some reason, and I think for good reason, I turn to this song a lot of times when I'm in a certain mood and need a certain song to get me through a particular time. It is almost in the same genre of Safam's Nahamu Ami, in my opinion, and as many parents lay their children to rest in Newtown, Connecticut. I hug my children tighter at night as we say Kriyat Shma Al Hamita, and I think of this song. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. <laughs> Mashem Eloke is Mimini Michoel, me, me, me,
2: me, me,
1: me, For El, We all